I speak to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So in my daily journey, as I try to figure out what on earth it means to be a follower of Jesus these days, I find that those little bracelets which were popular a while ago with the letters WWJD, what would Jesus do? They can be useful, but not always. Apparently, I'm not alone in this. Last Sunday, a provocative and popular and occasionally profane preacher named Nadia Bowles-Weber said this about WWJD. She said, when I'm struggling in life, I don't know if what would Jesus do is the mo most helpful question. What would Jesus do? I don't know. Something super cool like raise the dead or cast out demons or turn water into wine, none of which feel like a fair test of faith for someone who can't even remember to send thank you notes. As I said, I share her ambivalence, maybe for different reasons, maybe just because I'm Episcopalian and that's what we do. <laughs> my ambivalence has to do with the fact that if I ask myself, what would Jesus do? And then I read the gospels, I find that he doesn't always do what I'd predict he would do, he doesn't always say what I wish he would say. He doesn't always fit into my the theological or creedal con constructs about what it means to be both human and divine. The Gospels, more often than I like, he talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth and folks finding themselves in eternal fire. He talks about hating mother and father and gives someone a hard time for going to bury a parent. Um, he says his way is narrow and that few are going to find it. That proved true as he ends life alone. Almost all of his followers heading for the hills as he is put to death. And today, we read this story of his encounter with a woman in need of help. The gospel goes out of its way to make the point that she's an outsider, as in so many stories she comes to Jesus hoping to save the life of her child, a request that no one could reasonably deny or ignore, a request that calls for compassion. What would Jesus do? Disciples try to shut her up. Jesus seems to speak harshly to her, noting that his mission was limited to the house of Israel. He says it's not right to give food to the dogs. Ouch. That's when I might call in the spin doctor or the PR firm or the handler or maybe call for a retraction. And nonetheless, this woman persists. Perhaps as any desperate parent would, she comes right back and says, yeah, but even the dogs get some crumbs. Jesus is impressed. He commends her faith. He heals her daughter. My best reading of the text is that he changed his mind. Now, if you were to consult commentaries on this passage, you might run across opening lines like, this is a perplexing story, or this is a troubling text, or we're not sure Jesus really said any of this. These are not exactly the opening lines that a preacher wants to find. And all kinds of explanations have been offered for this story. And I bet if you go online this afternoon, 
you can listen to some sermons or find some social media arguments offering all kinds of interpretations of this story as it is read in churches around the world this morning. So a few. Some people say that Jesus was really just teasing the woman, that he said this with a smile, and maybe it was a kind of a joke. Some say he was really testing her faith to see how much she actually believed he could help her. One take of the story was that Jesus wasn't referring to Gentiles as dogs, as fellow Israelites might. It's been proposed he was using a term of endearment like puppies. All plausible, I guess. All may be right. I'm not convinced. I was really interested in what Richard Rohr in a new book on Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount had to say about this story. He said, Jesus initially seems to reflect the cultural, male, or religious prejudice toward her. But then he accepts her rejoinder. He admits he is wrong. He praises her and apologizes by healing her daughter. A perfect morality play of prejudice and patriarchy overcome. Now, I don't know what you make of this story or its interpreters, and I bet you can tell that I don't really either. But as I read this story, where I come down uh, draws me to refer to my favorite Peanuts cartoon, which is Snoopy on top of the doghouse, hard at work at his typewriter. Charlie Brown comes up, asks what he's doing. Snoopy says, I'm writing a book on theology. Of course he is. Charlie Brown says, you need a really good title for such a book. Snoopy, with that smug smile captured in just a few lines, smiles and says, I have the perfect title. Has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? I sense that that cartoon preaches to me and Charles Schultz once said that cartooning is preaching. Because we need to approach a difficult story like this with the humility that we might always be sure, not be sure what Jesus would do. And again, where I come down on this story is this is a story that describes a time when Jesus grew, when Jesus changed his mind. Maybe even to Snoopy's point and to Richard Rohr's point, this is a moment when Jesus realized that he and maybe his whole culture had been wrong. And that may not fit with your understanding of Jesus' nature, the mystery that he's both human and divine. But let me note these insights from the Gospels. Luke tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, moving from childhood to adulthood. In other words, he changed. He learned stuff. And along the way, I suspect he came to see things in a new way. At a couple points in the Gospels, Jesus admits he didn't know everything, that there were insights and mysteries above his pay grade. And I take all of that process to be a key part of his humanity. That's what it means to be human. I think we learned in this story that Jesus changed. And he came to a new vision of his ministry as he stepped outside his comfort zone, moved beyond the borders of his own home, encountering the other, and the change came as he made personal connection with this woman, as he came to see that her need, 
a need which he could address, mattered a whole lot more than his theology or his tradition or his tribal affiliation. In this story, I think we're all reminded that part of being human is learning. I think that's why we're gonna focus on discipleship this fall, because what, it is, what is a disciple but a student or a learner? It is being willing and able to change, which is not always the strong suit for Episcopalians, for a parish in transition with a new rector. There are gonna be opportunities for change. And I'm guessing we may well hear those words that strike fear in the hearts of clergy. We have never done it that way. Gracious God, may those words be stricken from the record. In this story and in our lives, it's not change simply for change's sake. And I think this is the point of the gospel. It is change in the direction of Isaiah's inclusive vision, which we heard earlier. Change in the direction of expansion of God's mission so that the arc of history can bend in the direction of love and compassion. Where do we see that kind of change? Just think of the arc of the life of St. Paul, a Pharisee steeped in the tradition of the scriptures he knew, a tradition which forbade any interaction with Gentiles. He got knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus and found a calling to include Gentiles in the Jesus movement. It's probably one of the most fundamental shifts that ever happened in church history. The change came first in his personal encounter with Jesus, and then as he interacted with Gentiles and saw the gifts of the Spirit at work in them. Through the work of that Spirit, he came to see that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, slave or free, a radical vision the church still struggles to live into. More recently, I'm remembering the early days of my ministry when women's ordination was still a relatively new thing. Some parts of the church, it took a long while to embrace that notion. Some branches of the Jesus movement, it's still struggling to be embraced. But I remember a conversation I had with an Episcopalian on the subject of women's ordination. And he hadn't approved of the changes in the church and he could spout all the reasons in scripture and tradition why that was a bad idea. But then he said, you know, at my church, while I was against women's ordination, I must admit, we have this woman priest and she is awesome. <laughs> she came to pastor me and my family in a moment when we were in great need she can preach up a storm. And he changed, not because of an argument about theology or tradition, but through the personal connection, that relationship, through relationships that helped him to see the wideness of God's love, the wideness of God's mercy. So this morning with this story, we praise God for the mystery of Jesus's nature, human and divine. The, divini the, the divinity is for sure a marvel beyond our understanding this side of the pearly gates. The humanity may be more accessible as the TV commercials say Jesus gets us. Gospels tell us he knew hunger, anger, fatigue, tests, 
forsakenness. And I believe he apparently experienced growth. And because Jesus could change and grow, and maybe even demonstrate that he needed to broaden his vision and widen his heart as his followers, you and I are called to change and grow and to broaden our vision and widen our hearts. The change, the growth will probably come not as a result of arguing about theology or creed. It will come not in rigorous defense of tradition. It will come in relationships marked by compassion and love. It will come not with building walls, but with adding seats at the table. And if this is indeed a story of Jesus changing his mind to move in the direction of love and compassion and inclusion, then as his followers, as his disciples, that is something you and I can do as well. So let me ask where you see, where you face growth opportunities for this week, how the arc of your life can bend, can change, can grow towards justice and compassion and love. Gracious God, Lord knows our world needs for that to happen. Amen.